So I'm just realising that I should have, I could have illustrated this with some, uh, with some pictures this morning, but I didn't. But you'll you'll know what I mean anyway. You've seen these, um, you've seen these inspirational pictures, haven't you? You know, you know the ones they they crop up on your Facebook feed, don't they? Or maybe you've got them as a fridge magnet. You see them as fridge magnets, don't you? Or posters, maybe up on the up on the wall, something like that. Um, what are they like? They've inevitably got kittens on them, haven't they? Loads of them, it seems to me. They've all got kittens on them. Or they've got like uh, children playing in an alpine meadow. Or they've got, you know, amongst the, the flowers. Or they've got an eagle soaring on the thermals. You know, you know the kind of thing, don't you? And then, and then underneath or above or something, there's some kind of inspirational saying. Isn't there something about living your best life or something about dreaming big or something about being the best version of you or something, something like that? You know the kind of thing I mean, don't you? Um, and, and of course, Christians, we do the same thing with Bible verses, don't we? So, so for example, uh, to go with Psalm 46 verse 1, God is our refuge and strength. You might, you might picture a, like a mountain scene or a, a craggy rock or something like that. Maybe there's a climber kind of uh, sitting on the rock buttress and he's sort of gazing out at this glorious mountain vista or, or something like that. Or, or maybe to go with verse 10 of the same psalm, be still and know that I am God. We might pick a, like a tranquil beach scene. Something like that. Maybe a walkway disappearing into a, 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 an azure tropical lagoon. Something like that. Maybe a, a young woman sat on the end, kind of dangling her feet in the water, gazing wistfully towards the Caribbean sunset in the background. You know the, you know the kind of thing. Um, and, and from what I can tell, just about any verse seems to be okay to match up with kittens, uh, doesn't it? God is our refuge and strength. Kitten in some precarious position. Um, uh, be still and know that I am God, kitten laid out in front of the fire. You know, some, something like that. Get this passage here in 2 Peter. Because there aren't many verses in this passage to put on an inspirational fridge magnet, are there? <laughs> what kind of kitten are you going to find to go with this passage? Um, you, you're not, really, are you? Um, Probably the image that ought to go with this passage is some kind of gory, stomach-turning kind of picture that shows, um, shows the damage that wolves can do to a flock of sheep. You know, wolves who are predatory creatures and who, who when they're let loose unchecked among the sheep, uh, will not simply take what they need to eat, but will maim and kill and maim and kill and leave death and destruction in their wake. If you want a picture for your Facebook feed to go with this passage, maybe it's going to be something gruesome, like a, a pack of wolves with the, the blood of sheep dripping from their teeth and corpses littering the ground. That's the kind of image that I think we ought to have in our minds as, as we read this passage which helps, I think, to understand the language that Peter uses here, because it's not comfortable reading, is it? I, I think a lot of people would probably look at words like that and say, wow, how intolerant of others, you know, how, how narrow-minded. Um, it's a passage that some people would find offended them or upset them, for sure. It's a passage, passage that Christians might find embarrasses them. 
But actually, I think Peter's language here, his tone, is because of the nature of the situation that he's writing into, which is a situation that is so grave, so dangerous for God's people, his flock, that this kind of blunt language he considers justified, regardless of whether it, it ruffles a few feathers or, or offends a few sensibilities. And, and that's because the passage is a warning that false teachers, who are the, the subjects of the passage, exist. They're real. And they're not harmless. They're predators, like wolves. And God's sheep are their victims. So don't be naive. This isn't a game. And yet, the passage is not only a warning, but actually it's an encouragement. It's a reassurance to God's people as well, that even when the wolves are running riot among the flock, yet the Lord is in control. And he is in control both to judge and to rescue. And, and Peter wants us to, to know this, of course, because, as, as we've seen, if you've been following to Peter, um, it, it's written to Christian friends with, with Peter's great uh, pastoral heart, and he's concerned to see them growing in godliness. So, in, in chapter 1, he's been encouraging them, hasn't he? Reminding them of God's precious and very great promises. Chapter 1, verse 4, he's been encouraging them then to make every effort in pursuing uh, godliness. Verse 5, he's, he's assured them of the rich inheritance that awaits them, Christ's eternal kingdom. Verse 11, and to have confidence in the teaching of God's word through the apostles and the prophets in verses 16 to 21. And as we'll see, there is encouragement here in chapter 2 as well. But that encouragement is mixed with warning as he introduces us to the reality of false teachers, warning us of what to expect, but reassuring us of God's control. I think that's what's going on here. And what I think we should learn from it, from both the content and the tone of, of Peter's words, is that truth matters. In, in, in chapter 1, verse 3, he said that God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us. So as Christians, it matters what we believe. As teachers, it matters what we teach. This isn't a game. Um, it, it's actually an act of extreme callousness to turn aside from teaching the, the life-giving gospel of the Lord Jesus to give some kind of gospel-free pep talk instead. Because the eternal futures of God's people are at stake. We're in a battle for people's souls. It matters what we teach. So I don't think we should see Peter's tone here as intolerant, but actually as wholly appropriate. And it reflects his pastor's heart to see the truth taken seriously. And so his righteous anger at false teaching, which leaves people facing judgment instead of rescue. You see, truth matters. It's not a game. So let's have a look at what Peter has to say about these false teachers. And, and firstly, verses 1 to 3, um, look at those verses where he tells us about their character to warn us of what to expect. Uh, verse 1. 
But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. So if, if you remember uh, from last time, he's, he's been uh, talking in the last chapter about the reliability of the Old Testament prophets, hasn't he? Through whom God himself spoke. And he says now, kind of by way of continuing that, that train of thought, but there were also false prophets back then. Just as there will be false teachers among you. And, and actually the Old Testament has got many examples of people who claimed to be prophets to speak on God's behalf but in fact did not. Uh, many of the Old Testament prophets actually warn the people about the threat of false prophets. So here's Jeremiah 23, for example. Uh, Therefore, declares the Lord, I am against the prophets who steal from one another words supposedly from me. Yes, declares the Lord, I am against the prophets who wag their own tongues and yet declare the Lord declares. Indeed, I am against those who prophesy false dreams, declares the Lord. They, they tell them and lead my people astray with their reckless lies, yet I did not send or appoint them. They do not benefit people, uh, these people in the least, declares the Lord. In, in other words, there were false prophets back then. That was a reality, and they are a reality now. False prophets exist. There's no shortage of people prepared to say, thus says the Lord, and yet they lead God's people astray. And in the same way, Peter explains, there will be false teachers among you. In other words, these ones that that Peter's referring to, they may not be claiming to be false prophets, but instead teachers among God's people. But nevertheless, Peter's point is, don't be surprised that this happens. It's always been the case. Where there have been God's prophets, there have also been false ones. Where there are true teachers of the word, there will be false teachers. Don't, Don't be naive. They exist. And and notice what Peter says these false teachers will be like. Second half of verse 1. They will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, and bringing upon themselves swift destruction. That's quite a bit in that verse, isn't there? Um, but, but quite a bit that we can see about these false teachers. F- firstly, notice they'll be secretive or devious um, in the way that they try and introduce their teaching. So we mustn't imagine that it will be obvious, you know, that we'll be easily able to recognize such false teaching as though they're kind of going to stand up and openly sort of declare their heresy, <laughs> if you like. No, no, their false ideas will be introduced secretly, deviously, little by little, so that you'll hardly notice. Um, Secondly, notice they'll be uh, teaching destructive heresies. That word destructive there, it it, it refers to the result of the false teaching. In other words, it's not teaching that will lead to salvation, but rather to those who follow it, it will lead to judgment and condemnation, destruction. And not only is it destructive to those who follow it, but to those who teach it. As well, those who lead people to destruction by their teaching will themselves be brought to destruction by God. The end of the verse. Thirdly, notice that they will be denying Christ by teaching heresies. In other words, serious errors, destructive opinions. So what we're not talking about here 
are kind of differences of view over sort of secondary matters, you know, baptism or spiritual gifts or millennial views or, or whatever it is. Now, what Peter is, is uh, talking about here, what he has in mind is teaching, verse 2, that even denies the master who bought them. And, and that's, a, that's a reference to Christ, isn't it? The, the Apostle Paul reminds us of the, the work of Christ, doesn't he, in, in 1 Corinthians 6. Uh, you are not your own, but you were bought with a price. So these are, these are false teachers who, who in some way are denying Christ in their teaching, some aspect of his character, who he is, or, or some aspect of his work, what he's done for us. Uh, and if you look on into, um, uh, into verse 2, um, you'll be able to see there some other characteristics of the false teachers. So, for example, verse 2, uh, many will follow their sensuality or their shameful ways. In other words, uh, these false teachers are not only leading people into wrong thinking about Christ, but also into wrongful behavior. We'll see more of that actually later in the chapter. But it's worth saying at this point, isn't it, that false teaching often, usually, leads to wrongful behavior. Indeed, that often seems to be what lies behind the false teaching, is the desire to be free from the, the moral standards that God sets for Christ-like living. Um, but look, there's more in verse 2 as well, because uh, we also see that because of their popularity, and the fact that many will uh, therefore follow their, their shameful ways, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And I think here Peter is thinking back to, to the truth that he's been reminding them of in chapter 1. Um, uh, you know, those, those gospel truths that we, we saw there uh, and the fruit that characterize the followers of Christ. And he's saying that Christ's ways are blasphemed and brought into disrepute by those who profess to be Christians but, but are peddling false teaching and its associated sinful behavior. Did you see? Then notice what motivates the false teachers, verse 3. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. It was uh, popular um, uh, around the time in in Peter's day to have sort of travelling teachers, itinerant teachers, people who would propagate all kinds of, of new, attractive teachings in order to make a living. And Peter's accusing these false teachers here of exploiting their followers for their own greed. And, and what are they exploiting their followers with? Well, they're exploiting them with false words. The word literally means um, fabricated words. In other words, stuff they've simply made up themselves, not the teaching of the apostles and the prophets. So there's a, there's a contrast going on there, isn't there, between the truth of the apostles' teaching in chapter 1 and the fabricated stories of the false teachers here in chapter 2. And it kind of reminds us, doesn't it, uh, of, of his point in chapter 1, verse 16. Do, do you remember? It's not us, it's not the apostles who have made up cleverly devised myths. <laughs> do you see? No, it's the false teachers who are the ones with the false words, Peter says. So what can we learn here? What's, you know, what's applicable to us? I'd, I'd like to suggest a couple of things. Um, one is the need for balance, but the other is the need to wake up. And, and on, the, on the issue of, of balance, I think it's important to, 
to notice that Peter is talking about serious error. He's talking about false teaching that results not in people's salvation but in their destruction. So so it would be kind of quite wrong for us, wouldn't it, to to go on some kind of a witch hunt and, and sort of lump together every theological difference and call it a destructive heresy. That, that wouldn't be a good application of, of these verses, would it? Because actually the Bible uh, allows for difference in, in secondary matters of interpretation. Because although we have an infallible Bible, we are not infallible people. We, we make mistakes as we try to interpret and apply what the Bible says. And that's not what Peter is talking about here as destructive heresies. So there's a need for balance. But I think there's a need here to wake up um, because it would be equally true to say that any truth goes, wouldn't it? And, and it seems to me, actually, in our culture today and in our church today, that is perhaps the biggest threat to God's people or the bigger threat to God's people. You know, we look at the cults or the sects, don't we? We're happy to say that they are not Christian, you know, the, the JWs or the Mormons or so on. But we look inside some parts of the Christian church And we find teaching that is sometimes just as far away from the apostles' teaching as some of the sects are. Denying the resurrection. Denying the second coming. Denying the authority of scripture. And and so on. But friends, these are not simply matters of interpretation. They constitute a different gospel. And and those who peddle that different gospel are surely guilty of, of exactly what Peter's accusing these false teachers of here in, in verse 1 and denying the master who bought them. And, and, and based on what we see here, what should we expect true teachers of the word to be doing while following the apostles' teaching? Preaching the person and work of Christ, his, his death, his resurrection, his return, and maybe getting scorn. <laughs> for doing so from those who don't believe it. But what should we be expecting the false teachers to be doing, based on what we read here? Well, we might expect them to be fabricating a new teaching and a new morality to go with it. And maybe one that denies the teaching of the Scriptures, but maybe fits with the prevailing culture. Isn't that exactly what we see in parts of the church today? I think Peter's calling us to wake up to these things because those who peddle this stuff are false teachers and the new morality that accompanies it blasphemes the name of Christ such that those who take it, uh, sorry, those who teach it are taking themselves and those who follow them down a road that will end in destruction. This stuff is not harmless. Truth matters. And and this is, I think, a a wake-up call from Peter here not to be naive about these things. So when it comes to these false teachers, Peter tells us about their character in order to warn us of what to expect. But secondly, have a look at verses 4 to 10 where Peter tells us about their fate in order to assure us that the Lord is in control. And and you'll notice again, this second half is no better, is it? It's very very uncompromising language. Um, And I think that's because if there's one thing that Peter wants to make clear in these verses, 
it is that God will judge and punish these false teachers. And, and he, he teaches his, his readers this by demonstrating it with examples from the scriptures to, to show that God has punished unrighteousness before and he will do it again. But that's not the only point he wants to make, isn't it? Yes, he wants them to know that the unrighteous will be judged, but he also wants them to know that the righteous will receive rescue. So have a look at these, that you can see there's three biblical examples here. The first of which is he talks about sinning angels, look, in verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment... Um, it, it has to be said, who exactly Peter means here by sinning angels is not, it's not clear. I don't think there are, there are um, a couple of passages in Scripture at least that he could be referring to. So that could be a reference to the fall of Satan. Um, it could be a reference to Genesis 6, that rather obscure passage. Maybe you've come across it, the, the reference to the sons of God sort of taking a fancy to the daughters of men. And, and, and taking them to be their wives, and many have understood that phrase, sons of God, to have been a reference to angels. So, so, so kind of which example he's specifically talking about here, it's, it's a bit hard to tell, I think. But actually the point isn't hard to tell, is it? The point is abundantly clear. These angels who sinned, whoever they were, did not escape God's judgment. They were cast into hell, verse 4 where they are even now being punished and kept for the day of judgment. And I reckon that example would have been actually particularly striking, perhaps, for Peter's first readers here. Because if you remember from chapter 1, it seems that one of the things that the false teachers were denying was the second coming of Christ in glory and in judgment. And and Peter here is is making the point, isn't he? There will be a second coming. There will be a final judgment. And these angels who have sinned against God are even now being held, awaiting that day of judgment. Do you see? So there's one example. But you can see a second one, look in in verse 5, where he's referring to God's judgment of the world at the time of the flood. And he's saying that, that just as he did, just as God did not spare those angels who sinned, so also he did not spare the ancient world. You know, that world, if you remember, that, that had become so corrupt, so ungodly, so rebellious, that God said to Noah in, in Genesis 6, verse 13, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And, and so only Noah would be saved. Only he would be protected because he, verse 5, was a herald of righteousness. He's described in Genesis 9 as well as a man who walked with God, a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time. So only he and his family, seven others, could God call righteous and so would save. Everyone else would be judged. And and it's the same with the last example, isn't it? You can see in verse 6, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, which if you've got a strong stomach, you can read about in Genesis 18 and 19. Cities who were uh, condemned by God for their their depraved conduct, and and especially their depraved sexual conduct. 
But, but actually their sins were broader than that as well. Ezekiel 16 describes the people as arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. Peter describes their living in verse 7 as sensual or kind of debauched and, and wicked. That, that's literally unrestrained. Does that sound familiar to you? It, it's a picture of uh, material affluence and ease and comfort leading to self-gratification and unrestrained appetites, indulging, gorging on every sexual freedom with little or no concern for others. And, and Peter says that with the exception of Lot, whom he describes as righteous Lot, who was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. With the exception of Lot, God totally destroyed those cities. Verse 6, he reduced them to ashes. He condemned them to extinction. And do you notice why? Verse 6, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Do you see? And, and it might seem like the false teachers of Peter's day, were going to succeed in, in deceiving God's people with their destructive heresies and their unrestrained lives. But no, Peter doesn't want God's people to imagine that. And so he shows them from the scriptures. The scriptures that we saw in, in chapter 1 verse 21 didn't originate in the will of man, but in the will of God. Those scriptures, he shows from those scriptures that God will act to judge and destroy the ungodly. That's, that's the conclusion that, that he, he draws from those three, three examples, isn't it? You can, you can see it in, in verse 9. If he did all that, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Do, do, do you see the point? If God judged the angels for their unrighteousness, if he judged the whole world in the time of Noah for its sin and rebellion, if he judged the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah for their flagrant debauchery, if God did all those things, well then he knows, end of verse 9, he knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. He's, he's reinforcing what he said at the end of verse 3, isn't he? Their condemnation from long ago is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. Or, or what he says in verse 1. They are teaching destructive heresies and so bring swift destruction on themselves. Friends, I know. <laughs> believe me, I know it makes for uncomfortable reading. It makes for uncomfortable preaching too. But what Peter teaches here is the consistent and, and unambiguous teaching of the whole of Scripture that a day of judgment is coming. A day when the unrighteous will face God's wrath and his eternal condemnation. And I think Peter's reminding his readers of this here actually to encourage and reassure them that those who teach and practice falsehood will not get away with it. God is just. And he will exercise his justice 
on the ungodly. He knows, verse 9, how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And friends, actually, that should encourage us, shouldn't it? I wonder if, like me, um, you get dismayed. Do you you get dismayed? I've been feeling this a lot recently. But do, do you get dismayed when you see another church leader, you know, kind of gaining popularity and gaining acclaim for denying some beautiful truth of Christ's person and work? And and not only does someone give them the prime time slot on on the TV, you know, give them a documentary in order to explain their cleverly designed myth, but they even seem to get approval for it from within the church as well. It's discouraging, isn't it? Or or what about when you see another church leader reported in the press uh, teaching, advocating, and in some cases openly admitting to practicing the kind of immoral behavior that the Bible condemns. It's dismaying, isn't it? When church leaders call good what God condemns. Maybe it even raises doubts in your mind as to whether the clear teaching of Scripture, not to mention 2,000 years of church history, can, can even be trusted anymore. Well, friends, this is why this passage is an encouragement and a reassurance to God's people, isn't it? Because it reminds us, as we seek to live for Christ, facing the internal pressure of false teaching from from within the ranks of the church, that God knows how to deal with the unrighteous. If you feel dismayed because it's the wicked who seem to prosper, if you're feeling tempted to join the wicked in their imagined prosperity, well, this passage assures us that it's not the ungodly who are in control. The Lord is in control, and he knows how to deal with the unrighteous. Be assured, he will return, he will judge, he knows what to do. But there's more encouragement here um, in the first half of verse 9, where he says the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Did you see that? Because yes, he judged the ancient world, but remember he saved Noah and his family. He took them through the trials of the flood because he was a man declared righteous in God's sight. And and yes, God judged the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, but he saved Lot, whom Peter calls a righteous man. Despite the stress, despite the torment of his time in Sodom, God protected and rescued him. Do you see, these, these people whom God had declared righteous were rescued and protected from the trials of living in in this rebellious and and sin-torn world. And friends, that too is an encouragement for the Christian, isn't it? Because it tells us that even though the Lord is in control to judge and punish sin, he is also in control to protect and rescue those whom he has declared righteous in his sight those whom he has freed from their sin by his grace, as they've turned and trusted in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel of the apostles and prophets. Set free then to live godly lives, lives lived against the flow of this world. Do you you see? Friends, God knows how to deal with the unrighteous, and he will. 
But God also knows how to protect and rescue his people from within the midst of of the sin-torn world. And and so, yes, it's, it's hard, isn't it? It's hard to speak and live for Christ in the face of that internal pressure of false teaching from within the ranks of the church itself. It is costly. But, friends, the truth matters. And so we're called here to stand up for righteousness and not to be tolerant of ungodliness and falsehood within the church, in in teaching or in behavior. And we're called to draw comfort and assurance from the certainty of God's promise to rescue and protect those who by faith put their trust in him and belong to him and so crack on (laughs) with sharing the gospel of Jesus in such a world, with our speech and and with our lives. Because, friends, Jesus is coming again. And when he does, friends, it will not only be to reclaim his own, but it will be to judge the earth. And we know what that means for those who don't turn and trust in Christ. So let the knowledge of his return as both judge and rescuer, be the fuel that we need to make him known. Should we pray? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the hard passages of your word. We, we acknowledge our need of them, even though they make us uncomfortable to hear and to preach. Um, please help your church. And help us here at Grace Church not to be naive, but to heed the warning that, that false teachers exist and they're not harmless. So help us to stand on the truth of the biblical gospel. But please encourage us too that, that even when we might feel that the wolves are running riot among the flock and, and our faith takes a battering and our doubts rise within us and, and dismay grips our hearts, Yet you are in control, in control both to judge and to rescue and protect. Father, reassure us and strengthen us this morning, we pray. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.